Hi folks, this is Shaq Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Tuesday, November 18, 2014. This is episode 1468, or 1467 of the Survival Podcast. And today I have coming on the air with us in just a bit, Diego Footer from Permaculture Voices, which many of you know is a conference, and it's a great conference done once a year. Actually, this will be the second year it's been done, but I think it'll be around for a very long time based on the success of the first one. Uh, Diego put that together last year. It was the first conference he ever did, and it was just a home run and a half. Uh, and I got to go there and meet people like uh, Greg Judy and Jeff Lawton and uh, Joel Salad and Dr. Elaine Ingram and some other really cool people. I had a blast, and... Uh, Diego also launched a podcast on permaculture, and his permaculture podcast focuses an awful lot on business principles, and I'm I'm very happy about that. I'm, I'm glad to have him on, and we're going to talk about this stuff today from an angle that even if you're not really into the permaculture thing, the business principles we are going to discuss today have a lot to do with how to be successful in running your own business, which is a big part of being self-sufficient. Before I bring Diego on, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show is here for you five days a week, Monday through Friday. Sponsor the day number one today, Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason. Why are you going to get your Berkey from Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason? Why wouldn't you? He's the Berkey Guy. You can't go to the non-Berkey Guy to get your Berkey? Why would why would you do such a thing? Seriously, though, Jeff is just an amazing uh, maniac when it comes to customer service. He really takes care of his people. He's one of the top dealers for Berkey in the world, and that means he gets some of the best pricing out there and passes it on to you. And he can often get Berkeys when nobody else can. And I'll tell you the truth, right now even he's having trouble getting some of the systems in because Berkeys are that much in demand, especially as we move into the holiday season. If you've been thinking about getting a Berkey for somebody for Christmas, and we are, my kiddo is getting one, uh, you might want to go ahead and get that knocked out before Black Friday, not after, because there is some pretty long lead times right now on some of the systems. But if anybody can get you one, Jeff would be the guy. Check him out today at directive21.com and check out his other cool things for your prepping needs, like the survival cave line of long-term storage foods. Next up today, Fortress Defense Consultants. Frank Sharp Jr. will help you complete that triangle of gun operator effectiveness you hear me talk about all the time. you got to have the weapon, and you got to have the ammo. Without the ammo, the weapon is an overpriced club. But even if you put the weapon and the ammo together, in the end, you are the linchpin. You are the top of the triangle. You, the operator, are what makes that weapon either effective in the defense of life and or property of yourself and or others, or ineffective. It always comes down to you. You are the final moving part. Think about that and invest in yourself, invest in your training. Instead of saying, which gun should I buy next? Maybe it should be, which uh, firearms training class should I take, take next? Fortress Defense Consultants has the classes you're looking for. Check them out at FortressDefense.com. And remember, if you have a big enough group you can put together, Frank will bring the training to you. You don't always have to go to his school in Indiana. But if you get a chance to, please do. It's an awesome experience. Next up today, let us discuss the year that was the episode. The year is 1467. I have three for you today. One is the first multi-alphabetic multi cipher. That's the one that we're going to be reading today. Let me tell you about the other two ones that are there. The other two, though, are the uh, Great Brotherhood War, uh, and then Inusha, and the Warring States Period. I'll tell you one little thing about the Warring States Period. You can read the rest if you want to find out, but... In Alex Shrug's uh, take on his own, actually, no, it said toward the end of the, the segment, he says that when people of Kyoto talk about the time after the war, 
today. They're not even talking about World War II even today. They're talking about the time after the Warring States, and that all kind of began back in the 1400s. But let me, the one I want to read to you is the first multi-alphabetic cipher, because I think I can teach you something if you don't already know about ways to communicate without anybody knowing what the hell you're saying to somebody else. And yes, it could be combined with email and be completely undecryptable, even by the vaulted NSA. Here you go. Leon Batista Alberti is known as the arc as an architect, and his books will be required reading well into the 18th century. But he's also a mathematician, and he's developed the first cipher code based on multi-alphabetic multi substitution using a code disk. The code key changes every four words so that the encrypted, uh, the ciphered text is resistant to frequency analysis. That is, looking for the most frequently used letter, such as E, won't help you break this code. Of course, one must send the code disk to the people who receive your message. This type of coding will continue into the 20th century, and the Enigma machine that the Nazis used to encrypt their messages is an example of a rotating disk code. Um, my take by Alex Shrugged, the problem with any system using a code disk is once someone gains possession of the disk, your encrypted messages will be readable. George Washington and his Kubler ring of spies had a much easier method, writing down a page number and the position of the word on that page rather than the word itself. As long as you both had duplicate books, it worked. Possession of a book would not mark you as a spy the way the possession of a code disk would work. The way that would work is let's say that we were using a certain book. We both had a copy of it. And I put down 58-120. That would be the 58th page, 120th word on the page. You write that word down. Next one is 61-12. 61st page of the book, 12 word on the page. You write that word down. Go to the next one. And that way you could de decipher whatever it is that I was trying to tell you. Now, this is really an unbreakable code without the book. It really is. It's it's because it's different every time. And the same word might be there seven times on that one message, but have seven different characters. In fact, you're, what you're supposed to do is, let's say I was using uh, on Alex's page here, uh, the fourth word in the thing would be cipher. So when I use cipher on the book page, I should put a line through it. And I should never use that occurrence of it again. And that way, I would have to find another place where it said cipher again, and it would be a different code for the same word. And each character represents a word that constantly changes. The only way it could be deciphered would be for you to have a copy of the book. Here's where it gets really interesting. Let's say we were using uh, The Telltale Heart by um, one of my favorite poets of all time, Edgar Allan Poe. Do you have the same edition that I do? What if we were using the collective works of William Shakespeare? That'd be a pretty big book. Could probably last a long time as a cipher. Well, do you have the exact same edition that I do? Now, let's say you wanted to be really creative and create a situation for yourself where you had tons of ciphers available to you. Sometimes you go into the bookstores, as long as they're still in business, before ebooks can put them completely out of business. And on a table, you'll see a lot of like classic books and reprints and stuff like that for selling for like a dollar to two dollars. If you bought three, four, five, six copies of each of those, five or six different books, gave them to whoever you wanted to have the ability to communicate with in code, you'd be able to communicate in code for a very, very long time. And unless the person intercepting your message was able to come by the exact book and the exact same version of it and know which one to use, 
They can really never be able to decipher your code. It's, it's all but impossible. It really is one of the most low-tech, high-tech things out there. And do we need it today? Right now? No. Will we ever need it? Maybe. I don't know. But you know what? What a cool project to do with your kiddos. To teach them the concepts of number placement, reading, cryptography. Cool idea. And it's a good thing that Americans know how to use skills that we may never need because the very act that you, fact that you know how to need, know how to use them sometimes prevents you from needing them. Anyway, that's my take on that one. Before I bring Diego on, remember to consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You do that, you help support my show. That's all I'll say on it today. And with that, I want to say, hey, Diego, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Hey, thanks, Jack, for having me on. Appreciate it. Long-time listener. Talked to you a bunch around the conference, but never been on the show, so excited to be here. Well, I'm glad to have you on, man. You, uh, you're doing a lot with Permaculture Voices. And like when I first heard about this, uh, a little over a year ago, I guess it was, uh, Paul Wheaton told me about it, and I saw it as just a conference, but you've kind of built it into its its own community. You've got a podcast, you've got all kinds of things going on with it. Uh, I really enjoy some of the interviews you do is because you bring people in from the permaculture world, but a lot of them really on the heavy on the business side. But can you kind of tell people what exactly Permaculture Voices is and why you started it and how you how you came to start it? Because... I don't know. When I was ten and in school, I was playing in the sandbox. I wasn't dreaming about, you know, running a, a massive permaculture empire someday. So, how did you end up where you're at? Yeah, it's actually an interesting story. Getting into it, what it's really became as an educational and inspirational platform to move more people into permaculture, and specifically where I'm really going a lot into the future is directing them towards making permaculture a career or a living. I think a lot of people like to do permaculture at nights and on weekends, but at the end of the day, they go to work some sort of job somewhere. And if you really look at it, if you're just doing work at night and work on the weekends, and you're going somewhere every day to work that probably doesn't align with permaculture principles, I would question how sustainable really is that work. And I think you could be a lot more effective and get a lot more great work done that aligns with permaculture type values if you can cut a career out of that instead of going somewhere else for a career and then doing this as a hobby on the weekends. So that's a little bit of how I backed into it is I had a full-time job. I still have a full-time job, and I do this on the side, and I'm trying to transition out of doing what I do into doing this. But I had this idea of what if we had a conference within permaculture that really brought in some of the bigger names and got them all together? What could happen in that scenario? And it really started as is a business. It was, I think there's a good opportunity here. I think there's a lot of demand out there for that. So when I came to go plan the event, you know, you assemble all the names from PV1. So it was Salatin, Alan Savory, Michael Pollan. And I thought when I could launch this event, I would launch it and it would just be, you know, sold out in a second. Imagine <laughs> Black Friday, people storming the doors at Walmart for the flat screen TV. And it was actually pretty quiet. You know, I was a little bit like, what's going on here? Um, so I... 
have iterated the event from there, and it's grown on me to be more than just a business at this point. I've really, you've probably seen this through your show, I've connected with a lot of the people that have been to the event, the speakers, the listeners, and it started to became become a way for me to really help people do more of what they want to do. And I'm kind of on this journey of figuring out Where's the future direction of all this and where's the part where I want to focus in on? And it's slowly evolving towards the business side of things. Well, let's roll back a little bit to like how you made PV1 successful because I, I know exactly what you're saying. It's kind of like the, the couple that goes out and buys a couple hundred chickens and they're going to lay eggs and then the chickens get old and start laying eggs and they figure everybody's going to show up and buy the eggs, right? And, and you actually have to develop a market. So you had to do that, but you did manage to, to do it. I mean, I was out there and it was a very large room when some of the bigger names were speaking and it was stacked in the back. And so how did you uh, get that working? Cause, and how did you get all these people to speak? Was it like once somebody said yes and you approached the next person? Cause I know when you came to me, you're like, I got Lawton, I got salad and I got savior. I'm like, stop. I'll go, I'll come. Right. I mean, there's a point where you're like, yeah, I want to be there, too. But how, how did you put something like that together and, and get it to work? Because honestly, somebody could do this in just about any niche they really loved that 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 model. Anyway, um, you just go out and say, hey, do you want to come speak? And they said yes. Or, you know, what was that all like? Yeah, that was really it. It was really just ask. A lot of people ask me that. How do you do that? And I think a lot of people are afraid to ask questions that there's a chance that they might get a no. So it was going out and asking people that didn't know who I was, probably didn't really understand what I was doing or think it was possible, but you just go ask people. And it did become that. It became, okay, let me nail down a few people that will give me some street cred that I can use to then leverage that to get the next person. And then you started to do that, and once you did that, it developed a critical mass, and then you could just start asking people, and they could say, wow, um, if they're participating, I'll participate. Somebody like Mark Shepard was like, if Fallon Savory is going to be there, if Joel Salatin's going to be there, if you got all yeah. these people, I'll be there. Yeah. So yeah. that was really the way to get that going. What's interesting is, you know, when we talk about big names in permaculture, any niche, we tend to forget that they're only big names in the niche. So, like, I'd say the biggest thing that we have that's that's beyond permaculture, that somebody on the street who isn't doesn't even know, if you told, said permaculture to them, they wouldn't know what you're talking about, is probably Joel, right? Joel's really, really well-known in the whole ag group. Mark, to a degree, too. But inside this niche, like, those are like rock star names. And there's probably hundreds, when do you think there's hundreds and hundreds of niches like that where, you know, somebody that's really into, I don't know, hot rodding engines or something would come up to you and I and say, oh, it's Joe Smith. And we're like, yeah, so uh, we don't care. Well, no, he's the guy that invented the, you know, the combobulator for the whatever engine. We wouldn't really care. And I think maybe sometimes because of that, when you really love a niche, you don't realize that in the end, these guys are, it's not like going and trying to get, you know, a, a, an actual, like, I don't even follow music anymore, but some modern rock star to actually come play at your event. You're dealing with people that are farmers or, in, in the other case of what I was talking about, like, like mechanics or something like that. And they're not really as hard to approach as people would think. No, they're really not. And they get it. And I think a lot of people think that some of these people are 
somehow unapproachable or on pedestals. And I can tell you, I've talked to enough people now through conference planning, through the interviewing, that I realize that most people out there that you'd think are big names have a lot of the same struggles that people out there that nobody's ever heard of do. And I think you're right. There's a lot of opportunities out there in all these little niches where you could go do this. You know, I just look at, you know, there's a show on TV now that's Spike TV, Ink Master. For some reason, I've gotten into watching this. But if you look at that, it's actually interesting. If you do an Amazon search for that, suddenly you can find there's four or five different competitive tattooing shows that have came up on TV. There's podcasts of former Ink Master contestants that have started. So it's this whole genre that's kind of been born out of that. And it could really be cut up into anything. Like I look at permaculture itself or the surrounding circles of permaculture and I do the podcast on it. You know, you cover permaculture stuff. There's the Scott Mann podcast on permaculture, but that's really it. I mean, we can have hundreds of more specific things on mycology, growing mushrooms, the science of mushrooms. What could mushrooms do? And further out, there's just a ton of opportunity out there for people to kind of plug into. And that really, I guess, is part of what I'm trying to do is encourage people to go find something, find a niche and exploit that. So permaculture voices one. A lot of the folks who listen to the show uh, were there. Uh, a lot of them weren't, but that went off beautifully. I, I told you I was like to do something this big for your first major event in a new business and pull it off that well, which I would have to say that, that it was ninety nine percent flawless. Uh, I'm sure it didn't seem like that to you because when you're behind the scenes running something like you're putting fires out, but to the, the people on our side. It was it was awesome, but you're making things a little bit different this time around. So can you talk about the conference you'll be doing in March and what 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 people would expect if they went there and how it might be different for those that went to the first one? Sure. Where I really or how I really approached the second one was different than the first one. The first one, it was let's get a bunch of big names. Let's assemble them all in a room and basically just make something that's really cool. So that went off fine. But then I said, okay, how can we we do this better? How can we get people to come to a conference and actually do something when they get home? So take some of that energy and inspiration that they get at the conference and go do something. Because I'd talk to people like Ben Falk who would say, you know, there's a great thing about conferences that people get all fired up, but then they go home and they don't do anything. So that really got me thinking, okay, how can I create the conditions to try and get people to go home and do something after the event? So I started approaching PV2 with that mentality. I did some surveys, talked to a whole bunch of people through email and on the phone that were at PV1 and got a lot of feedback And then I looked at a whole bunch of conferences outside of the permaculture space and other spaces because there's actually some really innovative stuff going on out there. So what we've kind of came to is a model for PV2 that's definitely different than PV1. It's it's less rock star oriented, meaning there's not Joel Salatin, Alan Savory, Michael Pollan there. But there are still people that I think are doing really great things, and I've really tried to focus on doers, people like like a Peter Allen, who's a former Mark Shepard intern that's now starting his own farm, because I think there's a lot of value in people out there who are doing it now 
in today's conditions, in today's economic reality, with today's technology that people can learn from. So I really tried to go out and find people that were more doers versus theorists because that was one big complaint. It's like we get that there's problems. We get that there's theory. Give us something practical that we can either make money with or improve the quality of our operations. So that's how I kind of shifted a bit of choosing speakers. It's like, okay, I want doers of people on the ground doing it. In terms of the event itself, one thing people constantly say about a lot of conferences, you hear this everywhere, is the best part about conferences is in between sessions or in the evenings. So I really started thinking, okay, if people are saying that, why aren't many more conferences exploiting that? You know, the problem is the solution. Let's try and increase conversations in between sessions and basically make those conversations sessions themselves. So I brought in a group that does a lot of group facilitation. And I know when some people hear that, they think, you know, real kumbaya holding hands type stuff. But I can assure you it is not that. You can actually get a lot of real productive things done in these kind of facilitated environments. But to try and increase the conversations between the speakers and the attendees there to get ideas seeded, to get people talking, to get people networking. Because that was another amazing thing at the first conference is the people in the audience were really smart and really switched on. So it's not... I think, you, let me hold you there real quick. Do you think that some of your speakers were a little bit taken back? Like they'd gotten so used to going out and having to, like your bigger names, to evangelize the why that they were kind of blown away with people like, get the, we got the why. Get the, we're done. We didn't know. No, give us the what. And by the way, here's all the things we're already doing. And I'm trying to, to skin this one cat, so to speak. Like, it seemed to me like some of the bigger name guys were kind of like, not, not over their head at all, but just kind of like, wow, I didn't expect this level of sophistication, knowledge, and action out of an audience. I'd say that's a fair statement. You know, and it probably, there's a little bit of fault on me for not directing them more, and probably I didn't realize it. I thought, I would, no, I was blown away. I was like, oh my! You got people like, well, we're running a, a cattle ranch doing 1,600 head a year. We're trying to transition to a civil pasture. Wow, holy crap! I mean, I've never done anything like that, and and then I'm a speaker at this event. I was kind of blown away by that. For sure, and that that's one thing that's amazed me of doing this and, and has evolved a lot of my journey is hearing what people out there on the ground are doing. And I mean normal people, not the, just the Joel Salatins of the world. So I really want to encourage conversations amongst these people because say you're somebody who says, okay, I just want to plug into permaculture somehow. Well, why not go there and talk to somebody who's your age Maybe he lives in your area, maybe he doesn't. They're not famous, so there's really no intimidation factor. See what they're doing, and you might find out, well, they really need help with bookkeeping or they need help with marketing, and then you can plug into that. But I think that's how people need to approach opportunities like this, conferences or, or events anywhere. It's, it's you got to go in with a plan to figure out, okay, I know there's going to be a lot of smart people there, both on stage and off. What can I do? to take advantage of that to really help me in where I can provide value to them. Now, just talking about like the kind of people that you have, a lot of these guys are people that you've had, as I'm looking through your speaker list uh, now that you've had on your podcast. When, when you talk about doers, 
And I really love the shows you have with people that are like, okay, I'm in business and I do this. Or even there's even been some people like, well, I, I did this at one time and now I've transitioned to something else, but here's how this worked. Or, yeah, I'm doing this part-time, but, yes, we're, we're, we're generating an income. Uh, there, there's a lot of people like that. What I've noticed with all of them, and my background uh, before I started doing my podcast was was business. And so I use a very business-like vocabulary. I talk about, you know, ARPU, average revenue per unit. And they don't use that word, but they use the terminology that means the same thing. And I found over and over again, the people that are actually making a living have a, a level of business sophistication that a lot of times people that went to business school don't seem to have because it is about practice Married to theory versus just theory. Have you noticed like that common thread in all your guests that that are doers anyway? Yeah, for sure. Um, I have a master's in finance, and a lot of what I did in school is basically worthless. You know, you could throw it away because when you go into entrepreneurship of any venture, agriculture or not, it's a lot of just grinding and figuring things out as you go, and a lot of it is really managing the psychology of what you're doing um, to be able to handle the pressure and move with the ebbs and flows. So, for instance, Curtis Stone, he's one of the speakers that was at PV1. I've done a couple podcasts with him. He's down here now, and we've spent a lot of time talking over the last few days about entrepreneurship and how can we get more people to go out and try these things and how can we get more people to do it? I think one of the common threads of the people out there doing it is they get to a point where they just say, I'm just going to go for it and I'm going to take a step and I really don't care what the negative reasons are. I've controlled my risk, but I just got to move. And it seems like a lot of people that start, there's some sort of impetus. They get to some crossing road in their life where they're just really fed up. So it, it really puts the pressure on them to make the change because I think a lot of people say they want to go into business, but they've said that for the last five years and you ask them, what have they really done? And they haven't done anything. So I think doers make things happen. And I and it, that sounds simple and it's like, duh. But when it comes down to it, I can tell you, most people don't do. They dream about what they want to do and they don't go out there and really put something out there for whatever reason, whether they're afraid of failing. And that could mean somebody says, hey, your idea sucks um, because we're in this society now where people are afraid of somebody bashing what you have or they lose some money on it. I think people also overvalue or overemphasize worst case scenarios. And mm. I think entrepreneurs don't do that like they think. I'm going to lose my house and end up on the street naked somewhere. And it's like, really, if the bad things happen, I mean, how bad could it be? And and you've talked about this a lot on your show. And I've talked to people like John Pugliano, who's been on your show about this. It's, I think we're at a time in society where people are disposable for other employers. So I think people need to start thinking more entrepreneurial, whether they work for somebody or not. Well, there's a lot of ways to get into it. Uh, we could talk about a few of the guests you've had. I'll remember the concepts more likely than the individual's name, so I'll apologize for omitting anybody's name. But, for instance, you just had one individual on. Again, I can't remember his name, but I, I love the podcast. It was about microgreens. And so this was a method where people could get into farming with no land because it was being done inside. 
uh, $1,000 or less in investment, and this guy was pulling down, what, like two k a week? Yeah, yeah, Lou Callahan, and he's actually, I met him through Curtis, who's down here. He's somebody who's a doer. He's out there doing this, and that's a perfect example of a business that is excuseless. If somebody says they can't do that business, then give up on the idea of going into business. Now, if you don't want to grow microgreens, that's another thing. But that's different. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But it's it's one of those things. Low infrastructure costs, low barrier to entry, quick cash flow. Worst case, you end up with stuff you can recycle into other parts of your property. You can eat the product, but it forces you to get out there and do things. And this is one. It's kind of one unique business that is like a lot of business. You think the hard part would be growing the microgreens, but the hard part is actually selling them. And selling them means you got to get out there and talk to people and communicate with people like chefs or at farmers markets and that's hard for a lot of people. So I think it can quickly expose the real the real excuse. Yeah, or, or, or area well <laughs> when people I think go into business they say, okay, they look at a microgreens business and say, "How I got to know everything about how to grow microgreens. Here's what I do to grow the radish microgreens. Here's what I go do to grow the sunflower microgreens. But the real key to that business is going out there and facing rejection and talking to chef after chef after chef after chef and trying to sell your product. Um, so it, I think it, it kind of goes another layer deep into what are these real – when you go into a business, I think you really need to look at what is the business about and am I prepared to take that stuff on and really get out of my shell and get out of my comfort zone to make these things happen. But I think, you know, Luke really did a good job of explaining how a lot of that works. And he was very business oriented. I mean, like it was one of those things where, again, you listen to people that are actually successful, like in growing microgreens. And he was using a lot of the vernacular I would use, let's say, when I had a company that did uh, network optimization for cellular carriers. It was the same type of thinking. Yeah, and it's got to be. I mean, that's the point I think we're at within permaculture is it's got to move from the backyard into the career space. And people need to kind of start understanding Basic accounting, and I know that turns a lot of people off, but at the end of the day, that's what you do need to understand to go forward. And especially being an entrepreneur, you know, like, like I think about somebody like super high level entrepreneur, like an Elon Musk, and like how cool would it be if we lived in a place where people grew up wanting to be the next Elon Musk, not the next, I don't know, quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys or somebody like that. And you've talked to tons of people in permaculture. What what do you see as some of the biggest opportunities out there, uh, both on a large scale, uh, you know, a la Mark Shepard style, or down to a smaller scale, something that somebody can just start up and do right away with uh, minimal investment, maybe a little bit of land? For, for minimal land, I think it's going to come out of the farming sector, you know, because one thing I said – I would think that anybody could do is, okay, if you want to go into production farming and you live in an urban setting, can you grow something right now on your property? I don't care how small the property is and then take it and go sell it to somebody. That could be one pound of greens that you grow on your property. And I think that gives people a a pretty quick 
filter of do I like selling? Do I like growing for production? It gets them thinking about stuff. That's something anything can you, anybody can do. Can you sell one thing off your property to one person that's not in your family? And so there's a huge area, I think, within urban farming to go out there and do that. So if you can expand out from a house, a lot of people have property or there's available property in their neighborhood to grow things. So you kind of got to test out the market. There's a ton of opportunity there. That could tie into microgreens. That could tie into growing mushrooms of some sort. But it's putting local food that's organic or better into the food system. So there's an opportunity there. Big scale gets tough. I think there's opportunity there in areas, but I think it's much more involved than most people take on. I've seen people like Grant Schultz in Iowa starting up these broad acre, 100 acre farms, and there's a lot of work to have to do there. I... I would really caution somebody to move from L.A. to Iowa to start up a 100-acre farm from scratch. There's a, there's a lot going on there. But I think opportunities, you really got to look at value add. I think there's a ton of opportunities there. Maybe see what farmers are already growing in your area and ask them, what are you, what are you growing that you have trouble moving? And maybe that's seasonal. What could you do to maybe value add that? That takes away some infrastructure that you'd have to do. It takes away that I have to own land excuse. Um, those are probably some areas I see. But the keys are, I mean, you said this. A lot of people have said this. John Kitsiner, I believe it. You got to find something you're good at. You got to find something that you like doing, and you got to find something that offers value to people. And try and find something within that intersection I actually have a, a podcast with John Pugliano coming up, and we we talk a lot about this. And he goes into things like green cleaning. You know, is it the most glamorous job? No. But is there a ton of toxic cleaning businesses out there that yeah. then means there's a ton of opportunity to greenify them? Yeah. Uh, yeah, definitely. I, and I think that's another thing, too. Like, so permaculture is really about a design science following the ethics, care of earth, care of people, return of surplus, and, and the prime directive, taking responsibility for ourselves and that of our children. And that doesn't mean that everybody that's in permaculture, you know, as a business needs to be growing food. Like there are so many other opportunities in the energy space, in the finance space. And then I love your comment there about, you know, finding producers and asking them what they're having trouble moving because I talk to people all the time that like, well, when I get a farm and we're going to be producing this and here's how we're going to sell it. And I'm like, well, if you really think you can do that, I bet you there's already somebody producing those things. Why don't you go out and become the middleman that connects the producer to the consumer and whatever you take is going to be better than what they're losing to a wholesaler. And, if you actually successfully do that, you may decide that's all you want to do. Or if you decide to produce for yourself, now you already have a market. Which, you know, we found out as we started developing Elijah Springs Farm, it's very hard to develop a market without a product. So first got to make a product, then i got to take it to market, which means I have product and surplus eventually. And if I'm doing something like a vegetable, it can go bad before I sell it, right? If it's a 
If it's a pig, I can leave it on, I can leave it walk around for another couple weeks, right? So to me, if you can make that connection, go do it now. Totally. You could be a production aggregator. Just aggregate for farmers. Farmers oftentimes are primarily growers, not sellers. And they take oftentimes the path of least resistance in terms of selling. And a lot of times that path of least resistance is the one that puts the least amount of money in their pocket. So if you can aggregate products from numerous farmers, bundle that up into your own CSA, farm stand, farmer's market booth, whatever, you can probably pay the farmers more than they're getting from other sources. And you're actually doing them a service because they don't want to deal with selling. They want to just grow a lot of times, not always. And I think the value of that, where you gain a ton of value, is in the building an audience, building a customer base. Because we're in a time now where there's a ton of choices out there. And if you can build trust with an audience and provide good products to an audience, the relationship you have to the audience for the long term is worth more than this one sale you're going to get from that, that audience tomorrow. But I think people are too short-sighted. They want the 50 bucks tomorrow and forget about this lifetime type relationship. So I think people can try and back into businesses of, of how can I tap into one specific group of people really provide them value and that might not always mean selling them something and then possibly use other people's products to then feed into that audience itself in you may or may not have to take on inventory there may or may not be capital costs involved but at the very least you start building relationships and i think that's what a lot of business is about now relationship building yeah, and I mean, so like every person I've heard on your show has talked about like stacking products in. Like, um, if if you have customers for one thing, you'll you'll quickly find out that some you know portion of those customers. Let's say you were selling uh, fruit to you pick you pick operation the way uh, Stefan Sobakowski does, right? So, or Sobakayak, I got his name wrong. Bad with names, but anyway, so. You know, you find out real quick that, well, there's a market for pasture poultry. So that means if, if I'm growing an orchard and now I realize my market will buy pasture poultry, I have to put in tractors, I have to get chickens, I have to do the work, I have to do the labor. But if I found local orchards producing apples and started building a business on local fruit, and I found out after building a book of business that my market would also be ripe for pastured poultry, Instead of going out and grazing chickens, all I got to do is find people locally that are already doing that and saying, hey, I can move 100 a week. And and that gives me kind of a flexible advantage to, to broadening my business faster. It's an awesome idea. You know, I look at it from a standpoint of, of here in SoCal, there's a primal pastures, a pastured poultry provider down here. Somebody could call them up and say, what could you really offer your customers that you guys cannot provide? Mm. And worst case, they tell you, sorry, we're not looking for opportunities. It costs you a phone call, five minutes, yeah. and you don't feel good for very long. So look at who's crushing it in your area in, in some field related to what you can do and go to them and say, look, I want to help you out. I want to provide value. 
maybe have some ideas in mind of what they're doing based on their business. You know, you're not going to sell crayons through a pastured poultry business. Um, <laughs> but but I think that's it. It's, it's you got to get creative. I, I think too many people think you have to be a primary producer or you have to create a brand new unique product when there's a huge amount of room in there to tap into existing customer bases and give them what they're already buying somewhere else because it were it, it on the producer end like Stefan said that in his podcast is if I'm already selling them apples and mm-hmm. they're already buying berries somewhere else well why don't I give them berries too it, exactly See, but I think, like, so your conference, I think that, like, what was just demonstrated there is, like, a reason to go to conferences like this. So I gave you one angle, right? You develop the market and then go find a producer, and you just flipped that right back around on me. little clever, sneaky trick you pulled there. And saying, well, go to the already existing market and ask them what they need. So uh, you could then approach two producers, and basically, before you even have a market, have two markets to cross-promote, which is, you know, it's a, that's a, a key thing in networking that's done all the time. And, and again, it's taking things that are used to, I don't know, if you went to a uh, chamber of commerce mixer, uh, you kick a table and, like, you know, 20 insurance salespeople run out from underneath it. And you kick another table and, you know... 20 um, uh, financial advisors crawl out from underneath it. Well, there's overlap there, and that's done all the time. But in this market, the overlap is obvious. Everybody eats. If you're eating one thing that's healthy, you probably want other things that are healthy. And I know for me in my market, like if somebody came to me and said, listen, we've gone out and found all these people, and instead of having to drive to Mesquite, McKinney, and Louisville, which I don't even want to do, let alone all three of them, we aggregate that all together into one place. I'd buy from them now. Yeah, yeah, it simplifies things down. Why not one-stop shop for a lot of these things? And, again, you're doing the producers a favor in this. I've talked to Mark Shepard a lot, and there's no way he can do everything he wants to do in his lifetime. So how can you help him accomplish some of the stuff he wants to do. Now, one thing I think people need to realize, it's like you can't just go up saying, what can I do? you got to come at them with some sort of value or, or prove. I think people identify with, with people that do things and yeah. have some weight. It gives them credibility behind what they're doing. It's like, hey, what, do you, what are some problems you're having, Mark, or what would you like to do? Oh, here's some things. Okay, let me come back to you in a month with some ideas, and then come back yeah. with a plan and say, look, I've really thought about your concerns. Here's some ways we can approach it. It's going to cost you one hour a week of your time, no money. Let's get working on this. And Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, if somebody comes up to me and does that, I'm interested. If, they, if you come up to me and go, what can I do to help, like as broad spectrum, like, just whatever you say, I'll do. Uh, I don't have. To, if I knew what I need you to do, I would have hired somebody to do that by now, right? Um, and, or the other thing is, like, if I tell you I'm having a problem, and you in five minutes just say, "Oh, I can do this, this, and this," it's like I'm not really confident that you actually thought about it. But if you go away and come back with some real numbers, some real market research, and things like that, and you've convinced me that hey, you've got some way to pin these things together. I, I'm, I'm talking to you because it's 
it's not just about making money for me. It's about the, I want these things done. And when I find someone that can get them done, that's very exciting to me. I'm sure it's the same way for you that, you know, if someone came to you and said, hey, look, uh, I can go out there and do a few things and, uh, and next PB, you know, PB3 will be 2,700 people and uh, it'll be four weeks long and uh, people will fly in from all over the world to be there. If if they didn't have any data points with that, you'd be like, you know what, I appreciate your enthusiasm and that's all nice and well but if they came to you with like a like a plan to make that kind of thing happen you're at least having a second conversation for sure that's how the gentleman uh nick wooten and jessica Schilke are planning the social part of pv2 the social permaculture track of pv2 they didn't just come and say hey i think you should have a social track and really emphasize parts of social permaculture it was like we would like to work on this. Here's our plan. Here's what we'd like to do. Here's the types of speakers we'd like to get in here. And we'll do all this. And can you do it? And it made it really easy for me to say yes. You know, and I look at people who listen to your show. I'm sure they could say, oh, Jack, you know, you need to improve on this, you know, whatever, your web page or something. But it's a lot different if you come back and say, Jack, I think we can make your web page better. Here's a mock-up of the web page I'd love to make. Let me know what you think. And if you want to go for it, let's talk. Yeah, definitely. I get people all the time, why don't you add this? Why don't you add that? And I'm like, well, you see, there's this thing called time, and I don't have any more. And even if I did, I don't want to have any more. I'm, I'm tired. At the end, you know, I had somebody recently ask me about uh, doing a class on Friday afternoons, and I'm like, you know, frankly, by Friday at five o'clock, I'm having a scotch and I'm done <laughs> and I'm tired. But if if you said, well, we'll set all this up and this is the piece that we need from you and here's how it'll all work. And you do a good job of convincing me that it will work. Well, now I'm interested. I mean, when you're trying to find employees and you're interviewing employees and you're hearing things like, well, I work really hard and I learn things and what have you. Yeah, everybody says that. But when you get an employee in front of you and they walk in with a plan and that plan is in sync with what you do as a company, you're like, I'm done doing interviews. You're hired. And I think that when you approach like partnerships and entrepreneurial relationships, that's the same standpoint to come from. I got another one to bounce off you, though. Like, you, were, you know, we talked about the microgreen guy and how little you could start with there. I met this girl about two years ago at one of the expos I, I spoke at here in Arlington and she has a suburban lot, and she has a full-time stand at a farmer's market now in Arlington. And her niche, the way he, she did this, and this is cool, she decided that every product she, she made as a value-added product would have at least one thing in it produced on her property, which meant one beehive, and I've got honey. All i got to do is put honey in it. I've got that hook. The next step was anything I buy, if I can buy it locally, I will, and if not, I'll buy organic. So it was either locally produced, produced on her property, or organic, and all her value out of products. She did everything from tortillas to salsas to you name it. And, you know, she ended up in one year, not with a, you know, Donald Trump income or something, but enough income to transition from part time to full time, you know, and her husband still has a job and all. But, you know, she works from home now. And, and that was like, again, you look at the backyard and go, well, there's not enough room. Not everybody's going to try to be like, you know, the, the people in California that grow, what, 10,000 pounds of food in their backyard. There's just small garden plots, things like are in most people's little urban homesteads or whatever. And yet she's been able to turn that into a business. There's so many opportunities if people will see them and then, you know, charge forward with them. You got a value add. 
if you're a primary producer selling into a commodity market or even just into a local market where there's a whole bunch of other producers producing tomatoes at the same time that you are, it's going to be tough. You got to have a unique angle. You're not going to make it. Uh, I'll tell you that. I mean, walk through a Whole Foods and look at the aisles. There are people selling eight ounce jars of nut butter for like 12 bucks. Yep. And it is all about finding somebody that wanted that product, creating that product. I guarantee you they're doubling up at least on margin on that and they're making money. Look at the the big producers out there or look in those stores and look at who is producing what. It's us. Produce is a little different, but you definitely have, you know, the ConAgras, these huge ag companies, the doles of the world producing commodity crops that sell in cans for a buck. And then you yeah. have the small producers that make the money selling the $12, $13, jars of pickles, kimchi, sauerkraut, nut butters, jellies, those types of things. So, yeah, I mean, if you, if you want to compete, I think on a small scale, I love the idea of taking something from your property because that ties it right into your story. It gives you instant marketing. You can start blogging about that. You can start talking about your whole journey. It gives people a sense of, okay, now I can really see where this food came from. But if you're just selling lettuce, it's it's hard. But that's what people want to do. They want to farm, but I don't think they go in with a plan of, how am I going to sell what I'm growing and differentiate myself from other people? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it makes me think you'd probably, if you need more tomatoes, find some old lady on your block that's really good at growing tomatoes and say, you know, put in 30 plants a year instead of 15, I'll buy the plants for you and, and add that to your production model, almost like a like an outsourced spin farming model. There's just so many ways that that functionality can be stacked. And then on the value-add product, people buy that stuff. I mean, just in the end. So, and I don't just mean it like farmer's markets and all, but, you know, I went to a farmer's market down here in Fort Worth just to see what it was like and, you know, more of a, a stand-based one where they have a store and all. And I go in and there's, there's you know, peppers and tomatoes and watermelons and all. I'm like, well, I grow all that. Uh, you know, and they have eggs and I'm like, I got eggs coming out of my ears. And I talked to the guy about, like, we have some surplus eggs and he wanted to give me, like, 50 cents a dozen on them. I'm like, I, you know, I, I, I'd rather feed them to the dog than, than, than do that. But then I walked out with like six jars of uh, jalapeno pickled uh, quail's eggs, right? You know, so so that that got me to buy something because I was like, wow, I, that's awesome. That, and you know, that was easy for that producer probably to do, and they were hand you know handmade at home. Or if I go to a gun show, I don't always buy a gun, but I always come out with a bag of beef jerky or something like that. Somehow, people buy stuff like that. Yeah, they love it. It's it's. There's a huge move, at least out here in the West Coast, to this more artisan, local production of a lot of things. You know, you see the hipsters tuning into it, and there's a lot to be said there. When you start seeing these artisan ice cream shops show up that are competing with Ben & Jerry's or some of these other bigger chains out there, how are they doing it when their ice cream is three times more expensive? They're using local ingredients. They're creatively marketing they're guerrilla marketing a lot of this. They're doing unique flavor combinations. It makes it hip. And if you want to kind of tie into that, that's how you have to think in today's day and age. Because I think it's a lot different now than it would have been 15 years ago or even five years ago with social and stuff like that. I mean, 
Like there's in the town where I live here in Vista, California, there's a cupcake shop that kills it selling $3 cupcakes. Mm. And a lot of it is their social media presence, the way they approach their marketing, the way they approach their flavors, how they do everything is very unique. And people can say, well, that's cupcakes, that's crap. But at the end of the day, it's a really successful business. It's employing a lot of people locally and making a lot of local people happy. So, you know, for somebody who's... I think if you can use that model to sell a cupcake, you should be able to use that model to sell a chicken or a dozen eggs or prosciutto ham or whatever it is, right? The model is the key. The model is a story. The model is a connection. The model is customer acquisition. The model is viral marketing. It's social media. It's reaching one customer in a way that causes them to talk about what they bought from you. I mean, I don't know about you, but I never went out and bought like any commodity product and then went home and like called up Diego and said, dude, I just went to Kroger and I bought six tomatoes. Right. I mean, that that doesn't happen. But but if I go out and find some guy that's raising pasture poultry and I go to his farm and I see them out there and I see them feeding on understory fruit and he tells me the whole story about I might actually call you up and say, dude, I just met this guy. I bought some chickens from him. They're fantastic. So having a product, whether it's a cupcake or a chicken or an apple or a financial product or a farmer's market value add product, whatever it is, if it has a story in it, like we. like that's why gossip shows and stuff like that are so popular in spite of their mind-numbing stupidity. We are social creatures. If you give us a story and it's interesting to us, we want to tell somebody else about it. But if you just give us a product, we're like, yeah, well, I got tomatoes from Kroger. I don't really care. I just had people coming over, had to make a salad. I didn't have any on my own, so I went and bought them. But if I get tomatoes from uh, a lady down the street that's figured out how to grow them in the winter in a hothouse but make them taste like really great instead of like bland hothouse tomatoes. Well, when you come over to have that salad, I'm going to tell you why those tomatoes taste good. Yeah, it's an excellent point. It really is. People identify now with stories and there's so many choices out there of what to buy that people are going to resonate with what resonates with them emotionally. A lot of cases, if I can really identify with the farmer, see his hands, see his family, see what they're doing. Does that speak to me? Then do I want to then support the cause? Because I'm not just buying the product. I'm supporting the work that that person's doing. And if that work is good work, then it's like, well, yeah, I'm buying food, but I'm also putting chickens out on the pasture, which is helping the local ecology and that type of thing. You know, I, I'm sitting here looking at a water bottle that I use now, and it's from a small microbrewery in Iowa. And they were really smart in the way they marketed their beer because the bottle itself is – it's about a quart, but it's got like a screw cap. So now this is the bottle I'm carrying around to put my water in. Oh, that's uh, because it's real- just a really cool looking bottle and it's unique. I've n- did, did they did I lose the you? thing? They could have put this anything. Did they prod you with that at all? Did they like say, hey, you can use this as a water bottle or was it just so obvious you did it? Because that's that's flipping brilliant. No, I, I bought it at a organic food co-op there and I saw it and it was one of those things like this is too nice of a bottle that the cheapo recycler in me said i can't throw this away or recycle it so i like it's glass it's got a screw cap i'm gonna carry wow. it around plus it's kind of cool it's like a hip thing it, it's a conversation starter where'd you get that yeah. bottle what's confluence brewing company 
So what, what that's saying is, well, they were they were smart to use the bottle, but then since they're not kind of edging you forward on it, right? Then that's a wide open niche to all the little nano breweries, micro breweries, et cetera, out there right now to to emulate something like that and to actually promote the concept. Like, don't throw our bottle away. Instead of you know you know filling landfills with plastic water bottles, use our bottle. Yeah, there's a there's a yogurt company that sold in the stores out here, and they sell it in a plastic tub, and they print a label on the tub that says something like. I've finished the yogurt. I'm now using this container for, and then they leave a blank space so you can write scraps for the chicken or buttons for the kids to do art projects or crayons or whatever. And it's just another way to get somebody looking at that package a little longer, thinking about, hmm, that's really creative that they put that on there. They they didn't have to put it on there. It probably didn't cost them any more to put it on there. But it it just tells a little bit more of their story, that they're thinking further down the waste stream, how people are approaching their audience, who is their who is their consumer of their yogurt. If they're buying an organic yogurt, they're probably into health food, they're probably into stewarding the earth, so they don't want to just throw this away. Well, let's make it a little easier to encourage people to wash this container out and save it. You know, it's just another little brilliant thing. That's absolutely brilliant. Sooner or later, some visitor is going to see something come out of that container and see that's written on there and ask about it and that's that's being clever, and that's something that the big companies can do it, but they're not going to because they they have their 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 eye on so many other metrics. They don't they they can't measure things at that level. They they'd actually like to, but they really can't because they're all about the next quarterly return, the next quarterly report, and what it's going to do to the stock price. Where the individual that's running the small business, the family running a small business, the group of friends running a small business, they can all say, hey, you know what? This quarter is really about expanding our market reach in a way that engages people with us at, at a personal level. And, you know, those companies, you can call the owner and they'll talk to you. I mean, can you imagine trying to call the owner of Del Monte or Heinz? Not happening. So there's just this incredible advantage, I think, right now because of the mindset of the consumer and the inability of the mega corporation to respond to that mindset in any meaningful way. Yeah, and there's definitely, I think, they're they're trying to, you know, being aware of monitoring Twitter, monitoring Twitter and trying to respond to that. But that's one huge advantage that actually, you're right, belongs to the small producer. It's your direct communication with your customer base, direct conversations. You know, if somebody calls me up on the phone or sends me an email, I try to respond to them all. It doesn't cost me any money. It costs me a little bit of time to do that, but it just, I think, adds to social capital down the line. And it's so critical. And I know I've said this a few times, but people have a lot of choices out there of what to spend their money on. And if you can take a little bit of time, and for a lot of people, time is more expensive than money. And if you can give them a little extra time, a little extra service, then it's like, wow, that, that was nice. I can identify with them. They're a real corporation or they're a real company, not just some faceless uh, accounting statement entity out there trying to take my money all the time. 
So as we round out an hour here, a little plus, um, can you tell people a little bit more about PB2, how they can find out about it, you know, uh, how they can sign up to come, and, and for those that can't get there, what you're doing this year for those that want the information but can't attend? Sure. For more information, they can go to permaculturevoices.com slash PV2. That'll list a lot of the kind of conference FAQ information out there. You can register directly from that page. There's everything on there from the hotel information, information about the speakers themselves. We're not going to video the conference this year for a few different reasons, but we are recording the audio for everything out there. So if for whatever reason you can't make it to the conference, we're recording it all. We'll put it out there in a format that is fully downloadable, fully streamable. That'll be available after the conference. And one thing I've tried to do is in this little bit of, I guess a marketing experiment is if you buy the audio, you get two copies of the audio, whether you go to the conference or not. And it's meant to, you get a copy and you give one copy to give to your friend. So that gets what I'm doing out there. It gets a lot of this message out there to people and hopefully exposes more people to the information out there. Uh, the conference itself, it's five days this year versus four. There's some extended workshops in there from people like Elaine Ingham, people that listen to this show would identify with like Michael Jordan's going to be doing a B workshop on the last Sunday of the conference. You'll be a speaker there. A lot of different participatory events in the event this year, interactive discussions. There'll be two socials, think parties, within the conference this year. It'll be a pretty well-rounded event. I think people will get a lot out of it if they go in with a plan. If you're just going for entertainment, that's fine. But if you're trying to decide, hey, what's the value of me buying a ticket, which is anywhere from $4.99 to $7.49, the value is what are you going to get out of this and what are you going to make happen coming out of the conference? So that's would be my value proposition. I can't tell you that you're going to go there and leave with a silver bullet plan on how you can make your future better. But if you go in and saying, these are the types of people I want to talk to when I go there and these are the types of answers I want to get, I want to make these types of connections, then I think that price point becomes a moot point at the end of the day and you'll get a lot more long-term value out of that. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. I told you right before we got on the air that we just got off the phone uh, talking to a group of guys working with Mark Shepard, uh, myself and the other guys from uh, from Perma Ethos, uh, about working on a property jointly in, in Arkansas. And, and frankly, that conversation would not have taken place w without PB1. Um, and I'm not saying everybody that goes to uh, Permaculture Voices is going to leave with you know that level of a connection, but frankly, I didn't know I left with that level of a connection. I, I spoke to Mark for about 15 minutes. Um, and, and then later that circled back around. And I think that the value of networking and connections is the biggest value in a conference. Uh, and I, I say that from conferences I did back in the day in telecom and, and technology all the way up to now with, you know, ag and, and permaculture. Um, it, it's always the way that it is. And it's, it's always what you make of it. Uh, and, and I'll be there. So, I mean, that's, that's worth a few hundred bucks just to say hi to me. I mean, I'm, I'm <laughs> of course, but no, definitely. I mean, I think as many people as Ken should come on out and we're going to do like a contest, right? We're going to give away two seats and, and you've trusted me with this. I, I guess I'm trustworthy with it, but basically we decided we didn't want to do something where like people just entered their name in a form or something like that. What we're going to do is almost like an essay contest, but 300 words or less. Uh, email me, jack at the survival podcast .com, 
put permaculture voices to in the subject line, and in 300 words or less, tell me a little bit about yourself, what permaculture is for you, and why we should invest in you. So we're basically going to give away two five-day scholarships as a way to look at it at PV2. Now, you have to get there, and you have to figure out how you're going to uh, uh, house yourself, whether you stay at the hotel, the event's at, or nearby, or whatever. But the ticket, you're giving away two tickets uh, to my audience, correct? Yeah, no, definitely. And if somebody's thinking, hey, I already bought a ticket, well, if you end up winning this, I'll refund it. Uh, so, wow. Yeah, no, it's fine. I want to make it fair for anybody out there and try and encourage people to – I like the idea of this because I think it puts people in the mindset of thinking, what's the value in this for me if I go to this conference? And if they can distill that down into 300 words, then they can either make a clear-cut decision of it's worth it or it's not. It might not be worth it for everybody. I, I totally get that, but I want people to at least think about where am I at here and what could I maybe do out of – this experience and how could it benefit my life and then distill that down into 300 words and maybe win maybe win you don't know and at 300 words i'll read it so if you can't do it in 300 words i got two things one you'll you'll you lose uh and two you probably aren't clear on it i mean that's why i picked the number i when i was talking to diego before we got on the air i pulled up a document and kind of just highlighted some stuff and did a word count and word and said yeah that's about 300 words okay that and I just feel like that is, and it's with business consulting, I often do that. I'll say, before we meet for your first consultation, you know, describe to me in 150, 200 words what, you're, what you want your business to do. And I'm like, well, I want consulting. That's my first piece of consulting, to be able to understand what you're trying to do, because I can't help you if you don't know. So I think this is a good exercise for people that want uh, something out of permaculture, whether it's a business, whether it's a great backyard. Uh, to start distilling down what that really is. And uh, and we will give you, I don't know, till the end of this week. Uh, so that will be Sunday the 22nd to... Uh, 23rd. Get that at the 20... Oh, really? Sunday's the 23rd, yeah. 23rd, I'm looking at Saturday. Sunday the 23rd to, uh, to get your entries in, and then I'll announce the winners on Monday the 24th. And then you've got something else kind of right in that same time frame people need to know about, right? Yeah, early bird tickets end on Sunday, November 23rd at midnight. So you have between now and then to get tickets. After that, they bump it up in price by about 150 bucks. And again, don't not buy a ticket because you might win. Because if you win, Diego will give you a refund. You, so, you got it. So you've got a week to come up with the why that we should uh, give you the sponsorship, the, the scholarship for five days to PV2. Uh, and uh, you got about the same amount of time uh, to get the deal at a, a lower price. And it's definitely worth it. Um, I told you last year when you asked me to come speak, I'm like, I'll speak because all these other people are here and all. But I would kind of said, I'm, I'm done with this traveling speakers gig. Uh, I got into this line of work to stay home. And I think I was at PV2 for about two days. And I remember turning to Dorothy and I'm saying, this is something if they want me back, I think I could do every year. And she said, absolutely. And I was like, you know, that, that actually took a lot because, you know, you get speaking invitations all the time. And I'm like, I want to stay home with my birds, you know, and I've got a business to run and my family and all, all of that stuff. So, I mean, I really believe in what you're doing, and it's, it's why I'll continue to support it. And uh, I also want to really encourage people, if you listen to my show, you like podcasts, uh, you don't put them out at quite the frequency I do, but you have, a, you know, a new podcast out, oh, it seems like almost all the time. 
and the level of business uh, acumen that you get out of Diego's podcast, even if you're not into the growing your own food concept, if you're if you're wanting to start a business, I don't know, doing firearms accessories, the business principles that you would hear by a guy that builds a $2,500 a week microgreen business in a few months, you need to hear that. So def- definitely take, check out the podcast as well. And again, Diego, thanks for being on the show with us today. Yeah, for sure. I really appreciate it. Um, there'll be a lot more of the business focus coming on the podcast. And like you said, a lot of this stuff oftentimes talks about ag, but oftentimes that's a metaphor for any business. So a lot of those principles can be transposed to anything out there. But yeah, thanks for having me on, Jack. I really appreciate it. And I appreciate the support. Looking forward to seeing you and everybody else out at PB2. Well, definitely, folks. I'll be there. Hope to see you as well. Uh, March 2015, March 4th through 8th. And uh, it will be in San Diego, California, at least uh, again this year. And I'm trying to talk Diego into coming to Dallas for PV3. We'll see whether that happens or not, but I'd love to see you there. You can learn more at permaculturevoices.com slash PV2. I will have uh, links in the show notes for uh, that and all the other great stuff available at Permaculture Voices. And with that, this has been Jack Spearco today along with Diego Footer, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. In our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.
revolution is you.